Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Harris, and it is my true honor and pleasure to host you here on the Growth Mindset Podcast. I talk to amazing individuals about how they achieve their dreams and break down the strategies it takes to lead explosive tech businesses to being paid to travel the world. I deep dive into topics such as Bitcoin and fintech or just how to get stuff done with the goal of increasing our own collective wisdom and making us all happier, healthier and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Today we have our first French guest and an absolute sweetheart, Antoine Blondeau. He is the founder of Sentin Technologies, one of the world's leading AI businesses, and he built the core tech behind the project that went on to become Siri. He is one of the advisors at Zerith AI, where he gives some brilliant mentorship. It was really great to finally meet him in person, and the first thing he wanted to know was how I was and what I was up to, irrelevant in talking about the podcast, which, seeing as we hardly know each other and he's a pretty busy guy, uh, just goes to show the level of character he has. We cover some awesome topics about the future and the past and dealing with problems at a personal level to threats facing the whole of humanity and there's some huge ideas that kind of made my head spin at the time and I can't wait to share with you. So, so relax and please enjoy the show. Um, yes, my name is Antoine, Antoine Blondeau's full name. I was uh, born in Paris uh, many, many years ago uh, and um, left when I was 19 uh, and uh, went to study in Japan at the time. And uh, then did uh, most of what I did uh, working in the technology sector for a while um, in Japan, in Hong Kong, and in the US. And uh, here I am now, both uh, an entrepreneur and an investor in the AI machine learning space. Okay. Uh, how did you always want to go to Japan, or was it just a random? That was a really interesting opportunity in terms of what you could be learning there. Yeah. When it comes to me, you know, a few things are random. It's not that I. Um, don't like to be surprised actually i do but i usually have goals and i try to get there and then i'm opportunistic along the way I'm very opportunistic and so things change very quickly but japan was uh, well thought through we um back in the 80s uh, late 80s uh, early 90s i should say late 80s when i was completing my studies japan was um doing well and at the time i was trying to find something that would challenge me and uh, I thought, well, I can always get to the U.S. I have been to the U.S. And, um, the U.S. had a strong attraction to me in many ways, but I thought it would not challenge me as much as Japan would. And uh, so, sure enough, um, uh, and so I, I made the decision to go there. At the time, there was no much choice. You could uh, you could go to the U.S. or Japan when it came to going outside of Europe. There was no China. There was really no India. Um, very little to choose from, aside from those two you know, developed economies where you could be challenged. And for sure, Japan was more of a challenge in many ways, culture, language. Yeah. So, so you learned the language? I did. Uh, I did learn the language. I thought I, I thought I had learned it before going into uh, the country. And then I realized that what I had learned was, you know, fairly useless. Yeah. And, uh, so I had to do the hard work, hard work of learning it uh, on the job or, you know, on the study. Or... Yeah. So you were studying in Japanese while learning it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Wow, so did you have really bad grades initially or mostly you all right? I think they were really kind with people yeah. like me. That's good. Showing some uh, some of the traditional welcoming spirits of the yeah. Japanese people. <laughs> nice. Did you uh, like learn any lessons from Japanese then? Like how do you treat others or 
conduct yourself. Kipen was with an extraordinary lesson in life, especially back then when they were leading the world in many ways. Um, I, when I was in Japan back then, I felt a bit like science fiction. Mm. Um, topical, if you love the Blade Runner, but the old movie, um, the 1982 movie, felt a bit like that sometimes. And um, there were many, many great moments in Japan. Um, I learned many things. One, one of the things that I really learned was racism. Um, for the first time in my life, I was subject to racism, and that taught me a huge lesson about, you know, what is it, what, uh, how people deal with differences, and um, how difference creates fear, mm. and uh, totally irrationally. And no matter how good I was at Japanese, for example, from time to time, I would be subject to racism, which was extraordinarily educational for me. And I can, I can tell you, it, um, it, um, you know, I, I always considered myself as tolerant, um, but post that experience, um, I became extremely liberal from a social standpoint. Yeah. Okay. So, in what? How were people racist exactly? They were not openly racist in that they um, they would um, they would not insult you in any way, but it was subtle and very clear once you understood the clues. Mm. And um, they just didn't think you were capable, or yeah, it was. Um, um, capability. It was, I think, more about um, uh, a, a. It was more a question of you don't belong here, and mm. um, and you you feel that if you enter a store, yeah, if you want to get a taxi, um, if you if you are spoken to, and sometimes they would speak to you in a you know very differential language, mm. um, differentially, and, and being like over nice, which was nice, yeah, uh, and sometimes the opposite. And Japan was. I think it still is a fairly closed and country, but it was a very strong tradition of culture, and, and generally it's super welcoming. I love the country. However, um, the, there is a um, perception of difference creates reactions that are sometimes very emotional and not, not always get the word the words the right way. Interesting. Cool. Um, can we go into sensing technologies? What you're working on now? Uh, can you introduce the company briefly and how it came about? Sentient technologies is the result of uh, years of exposure to what I would call the allegories of big science and uh, how to apply this to uh, real business level applications and. The genesis of uh, Sentient goes way before Sentient when my co-founder and I were working on what eventually became Siri. Uh, we had a very novel approach to natural language processing at the time, just in the early 2000s, believe it or not. And we were able to scale the process of natural language processing application development in a way that nobody had done before. One of, one of the reasons we were able to do that was because we were applying both a architecture for uh, NLP that was novel, intelligent agent-based, sort of an ontological as opposed to grammatical approach. But also we were, we were uh, reinforcing this with a reinforcement learning algorithm. So we were using uh, evolutionary computation to improve um, the accuracy of these uh, intelligent agent networks when we were asleep, so overnight. Yeah. So we'd come in the morning, the, the NLP uh, performance was a little better. Cool. It was quite fun. Yeah, and so that was the genesis. So when you know, after um, we sold that company to to Sybase, and I worked with Salesforce for a while, and I saw there's something that we can do here. Is there this approach? Nobody was talking about AI machine learning by exactly just ten years ago. Uh, but was, was is this some is there something we can do here where we can begin to scale the process of 
generating increasingly higher, better levels of intelligence. And so to me, the idea was, uh, let's take a parallelizable learning algorithms, a set of learning algorithms, then distribute that across many nodes, uh, many compute nodes, so that you can harvest an enormous amount of compute over time. And then as you do that, arguably, you can handle more dimensionalities than anybody else can handle typically. Therefore, you can solve problems that nobody else can solve. That was the idea 10 years ago, which I fast forward to now. In many ways, Sentient has become that company that I envision, which is massively scaled, distributed AI platform that um, harvests enormous amounts of compute that translate that into uh, the evolution of um, more intelligent uh, AI constructs and applies this to different types of um, businesses, in our case, finance, insurance, uh, sorry, finance, e-commerce, digital marketing, and then agriculture and healthcare. Okay, how might you explain the difference between sentient and like DeepMind that we might be aware of? Uh, there's no fundamental difference in the philosophical approach that we take okay. in that DeepMind is a deep reinforcement learning approach to uh, the neural network science. Sentient is a deep reinforcement learning approach, though we don't use the same uh, self-learners. Yeah. I mean, we, we use uh, evolution. But we also apply this to neural networks, not only, but also other things, but to neural networks as well. It's a process called neuroevolution. So philosophically, um, Demis' approach and our approach is very similar. The way we apply it uh, is quite different. We, we're trying to build a business. Yeah. Demis, you know, clearly had a five-year roadmap to build first the critical yeah. mass of, uh, of the best possible PhD students we would get in Europe, and then build value upon that and, and eventually scale a business. But in our case, we try to do that a little earlier. Okay. Uh, so for listeners, Demis is the CEO of DeepMind. That's correct. Um, and then this leads nicely into what my next question was going to be was how did you go about so you always had like the business case first to raise money for or did you literally solve the business problem straight away and made money and never needed to raise or can you explain how you built where you are the way we built our own staircase to our own lighthouse right um yeah. and, and by the way when we are nowhere near the we arrived at the lighthouse just yet was um, by doing two things at the same time. One was building deep technology. So we, we always believe that in this space, it's important if you work at, at the science and at the tech level. It's really critical to our DNA. It's our DNA. But also in a process, ensuring that we, along the way, were able to show the value of what we had built tangibly. Mm. And so, for example, you know, our goal was eventually to, one of our goals in our, in our finance group was to build sort of the full-blown all-encompassing, all-knowing artificial freighter. Yeah. Sounds like a huge goal. It is a huge goal. Yeah. But so how do you get there, right? So you don't get there overnight. You don't even get there in two years or five years. It's just way too ambitious. However, what you can do is you get, can get to first base. And the first base for us was, can we build a day trader um, that will outperform? And can we build it from scratch? Can we have these giant sort of machines, these millions of CPUs we have, that we have, and thousands of GPUs? Can we actually apply them in concert to evolve? Not an all-encompassing trader, not God of the markets, but a yeah. decent day trader. And we're able to do that, and when we're able to do that, that's you know, nobody had done this before. Yeah, how long did that take? A long time. It took. Uh, I would say it took three, three to four years. Okay. How big was the team working on it? I self-financed for uh, most of that time, oh. and which which uh, was a lot of work, um, a lot of belief as well. 
The team at the time was about 15 people, 12 to 15 people. Okay, that's a lot of money then. Sensible. Yeah, okay, that's impressive. Uh, cool. And then I watched one YouTube video which said you're in stealth mode and then you kind of came out of stealth mode. So you're under like a very generic name. Yes, we had a we had a generic name. Actually, it's called Genetic Finance. People thought we were some form of genetic engineering company. Yeah, um, cool. Biotech, something. Yeah, and then we 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 stayed on the radar for as long as we could, meaning until we were about 40, 45 people. Mm. Wow, that's a big company. And then, so how were you raising money for that? Was that after that you were making money? So we were raising money. So we did uh, a number of rounds before, um, before we got out uh, in the open. So we did. Uh, I think we did raise something like 35 or uh, something like yeah. this until we actually got uh, mm. ready to talk about us more meaningfully. Okay. And then, so when you went public, was that because you wanted to do a bigger raise or just because you're ready to like sell a lot more? The reason why we began to talk about ourselves um, when we um, raised our last round mm. was because we needed people. And by then, you know, we're 45, 50 people. We had exhausted, exhausted our the network of, yeah, of really good people you have right, yeah. around yourself. So we had to go to the next level and that required us to be known. Yeah. So that's why we uh, we decided to begin to communicate. And that's what we did. Makes a lot of sense. So before then, were you hiring people from like your network then? Mostly before it was um, friends, friends of friends, whatever. Okay. Yeah, I do find it interesting how people recruit. Uh, so after that, you then, just to check on anyone, well, as in you're just more public about how what is your favorite interview question when you interview someone my favorite interview question is if i asked your friends your former colleagues your colleagues your bosses your subordinates how they would qualify you what would they say and i usually ask folks to give me the top three qualifiers and it's interesting because what it gets people to think is how they're perceived Mm. and it's it's a harder question it's a little more interesting question in my view to answers and what do you believe are your strengths and what do you believe are your weaknesses. Yeah, it's, re- it's really whether you are acting upon your strengths yeah. and also showing your weaknesses with others. Yeah, yeah, it's much more profitable actually for any employer, anyways, than what people perceive. Good question. Um, okay, uh, if I ask your previous employees or colleagues uh, <laughs> what your top three qualifiers were, what would they say? I think they would say driven. Mm-hmm. Ambitious, maybe it's the same thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's close. Um, honest and dedicated. So it's I think the three things. I have I have ambition. I, I'm uh, I'm very honest. I, I believe mm-hmm. not just with others but with myself, and uh, I really work hard. That's mm-hmm. the good things. The yeah. Bad things. I can tell you a few bad things too. Yeah, I really know. Uh, stubborn. Mm-hmm. That's like a good weakness. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. it's a good weakness, but sometimes I mean it's it can be very blinding. Yeah. So stubborn. Um, uh, I think that the um, it goes with it too, but flexibility, I think, is adaptability. It's really critical in this new in this world. Very important in this world. And I don't think it's something that I have in me that is natural. It is something that I've acquired. Yeah. And uh, if I could be more flexible, more adaptable, I'd be better. So how did you acquire that skill? Because that's a perfect way of mindset uh, topic. Like, so you identified yourself as not being. So I think it, it was by through challenges. Mm. I don't think it was that smart to be able to reflect upon my yeah. lack of adaptability. It was more through challenges and being um, willing to apply uh, or maybe being forced to apply the lessons. Right? When you, you talked about Japan earlier, when you go to Japan and 
you know, every day is, can be a struggle in the beginning. I mean, obviously, yeah. you, um, you it gets you to question yourself in many, many ways. And so I think that um, the, the good thing is that I was willing to be questioned, uh, and that I think forced me to adapt to the forcing function mm-hmm. uh, more than some any any thoughtful way to appreciate how uh, inflexible I might have been. Okay. Um, do you have any form of self-practice like meditation or self-improvement or do you have regular check-ins with your founder and co-founder about ways you can do better? So no to any uh, uh, meditation or or um, self-reflection upon myself that I would, would that I would do on my own time. However, I seek feedback mm. a lot. And I still believe that I did not seek feedback enough. Mm. I think feedback is the best way to improve. Mm. Uh, but certainly, uh, and so what I've done, uh, sentient was very interesting. I, um, I uh, engage consultants um, who are from the table group, you might have heard of them, um, to help us work on our culture. Mm. And it was very interesting and to me a huge eye opener. How culture is, I always believed culture was very important, yeah. But how quickly and how well we can improve upon a culture within short yes. was, was very impressive to me. Okay, what were the main improvements they executed? It was all about communication, trust, it was communication, trust, honesty, and the feedback loop, mm. uh, and uh, engage in constructive conflict. They're all related, top, all related topics and concepts, but when applied together, extremely powerful. Okay, so. Can you have like an example of, so you have like more regular check-ins like yeah, so far so you know we already did you know, you know startups do all hands so we already, we already yeah. did that but um one thing we um one thing we did that was uh, i think very effective was we began to systematically at um, every meeting uh, make sure that we had no uh, we were not leaving any stone unturned there was no underlying agenda no hidden agenda everything was on the table a yeah b that we were proactively asking each other whether we had um, left any stone unturned and then at the end of the meeting we systematically do a very quick feedback on how the meeting went yeah yeah uh, was it a good meeting was it a bad meeting or is it good or is it bad anything we can do to improve and if you do that systematically you get extremely good results over time yeah and i've already found that when i was at crowd emotion as project manager for product manager running all the sprints and i think ended with like doing like a lesson link for it at the end of the year you ran for the sprint and then you have like the like good now half an hour reviewing yeah. what actually before went wrong can you improve yeah exactly made everything much more effective going forwards. And if you do it in context, just right after, yeah. you know, as you do this meeting and just right after, it's just very fresh in people's mind. Right? Mm. And there's no way, I mean, there's, there's almost never any meeting or any traction that is perfect. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Right? So it behooves people to actually find what we did that could be improved upon. Mm. Right? Nice. Cool. Um, okay, so back to a sentient and what you guys are doing. Um, what's, if you could only have one focus for what you do with the AI, what would it be? It would be at the application level, the type of things that we have uh, done uh, and launched recently, the last, let's say, year or so. Mm-hmm. We released a product called uh, Ascend. Okay. And that product enables you to turn uh, a static property, a website, mm-hmm. into some, some, something that now is dynamic. So if you think about um, websites and how people look at, at them, you know, it's very much like entering a store, yeah. a, a brick and mortar store. You know, the walls don't change, mm-hmm. 
and the words don't change and the, the core remains the same day in, day out. And, and we have not really leveraged the capabilities of the internet to give us that, to deliver that flexibility. And so what happens here is we, uh, we sort of a way to begin to engage the audience so that we do sort of an A-B testing on multiple levels of steroids yeah. and turn your web property into something that's dynamic. And if you think about this, it means not only you engage with your audience and so design in partnership mm. with your audience, effectively, that's what it is, eventually, even if you operate within your own brand guidelines, yeah. but, but it's also the ability to, for uh, the virtual world to begin to conform to us humans opposed mm. to the opposite. And that is what gets me excited because what applies to website can apply to anything, advertising, yeah. content, anything. And that's, that's the first in my view, the first real opportunity we have to actually have intelligent design, um, no religious uh, yeah. connotation here, uh, intelligent design be at the heart of how we interact with this world. Yeah. So that's what I would focus on. Okay. How long do you think it would be before, you know, like next, well, like IMBD sort of, it just had like the ratings of like the population on a given movie, but well, that's smart enough to know instead what the rating would be for me because of if I know already knows what my ratings are, it should actually be able to tell me what I would think of a new movie coming up based on other people who always vote like me that voted on it. And then yeah. if I was to go to my mate's house and a bunch of friends were about to watch a movie, could it then work out what the best movie is between all of us? Yeah. That we should watch. Yeah, I think the today today's recommendation engines are very simple. Mm. And they're based on what you just mentioned, you know, past behavior or um, cohorts-based mm. categorization of you know your patterns of behavior. Yeah. And that's it's very limiting because it, it, it does not take into account the most important thing, which is how you feel right now. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, uh, the, so the, the, question, the question is very pertinent in that today it's, it's really not yet happening. You, as Sentient, we actually did deliver uh, something that begins to address the user intent in a moment. Mm. Uh, approach in, uh, for example, in shopping, where we're able to uh, infer intent based on you know a simple gesture. Someone clicking on an image, right? So if you click on an image, just like you would do a gesture in a brick and mortar store, I like that. And then in real time, in a physical store, the sales associate is able to curate based on that input uh, a selection that, would, that is relevant to you. And, they, and yet the person doesn't know anything about it. Just because you said, oh, I like this pair of shoes, um, he or she yeah. is able to do something that's really smart, actually, most yeah. of the time. So why are systems not intelligent that way? Well, because they have not been deployed to be intelligent that way. And I think one step we did was to begin the process of having a system understand what is it, in, what is it that you like in yeah. a picture that you've clicked on and that you did not like in a picture that you did not click on. And begin to through a visual dialogue enter into something that is much more satisfying. That to me, this is not science fiction. This can be done. Uh, will it soon know what type of movie movie you like at any given time, or what type of movie you and your friends want to watch at any given time? Uh, maybe not immediately, but I don't think that's science fiction at all. Within three four years, I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah, it's something I wanted to be working towards, like automation. Yeah, taking in user intent. Yes. I think that's the key, much more than trying to categorize the behavior. The, yeah. the, the truth is people are changing, circumstances are everything, context are everything. Yeah, cool. And then what about your plans in medicine? You have quite a lot there. Yes, so we like medicine because it's about obviously saving lives. Mm -hmm. um, we don't like medicine because uh, it's overly, maybe for a good reason, regulated. regulated. <laughs> uh, 
And so go to market can be horrendous. Yeah. So we did a fantastic proof of value project with MIT where we were able to predict the onset of sepsis 30 minutes ahead of time, which enables the doctors to actually save you uh, before you get infected sepsis with blood infection. And it roughly kills you half the time. And it, and it happens, uh, I mean, most, most of the incidents of sepsis are in ICUs and hospitals. And in, the, in American ICUs, is the number one cause of mortality. So it's a big, big issue. Um, the telltale sign of, a, of sepsis is a massive uh, drop in blood pressure. That's why you, you go to the ICU, you're hooked up to a blood pressure machine. Mm-hmm. Problem is, once it's detected, you still only have 50% chance to make it. So the question was, can we give the, the practitioners what they need from us, which is 30 minutes, so 30 minutes head start. Mm-hmm. That's what we were able to give them with 91% accuracy, which is phenomenal. But that system won't be deployed for for a while simply because of regulation. Yeah. And that's what happens. Yeah. How, what does the system recognize that comes on before the blood drop? It, it, looks, uh, it looks at the blood pressure at a very high frequency. It, it, it looks at it um, at a sample rate of 125 milliseconds. And, wow. and it's able to, based on this, it's able to build um, representative indicators of the, the waveform, if you will. And then in a combination, uh, self develops rules that are um, telltale sign of uh, a catastrophic even 30 minutes out. So it's very much like trading, same same, same yeah. approach, right? Except that in this case, you're not trading the price of the stock, you're predicting a, a massive blood pressure drop, and it works. Cool. Yeah, that's an interesting and I think the word <laughs> demonstrative picture. Yeah. I get it. Cool. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, if uh, you could have it your way, what would the future be like? It's a great question. Nobody has ever asked me that question. So I need to ponder a little bit. Um, okay. So to me, um, it's funny. I have a uh, picture maybe, mm. of what it would look like or what it would feel like. But it's um, and it's it's a picture of a very uh, interactive, perhaps slightly chaotic uh, and serendipitous place where uh, you have this... Um, hyper-communication, where it's extremely easy to communicate with everybody, where we all link, um, if possible, at, at um, more than sort of this physical interface that we have today, which is very, very um, ineffective. Language is not effective. doesn't convey our thoughts as well. Yeah. And so if we had, a, I guess, a direct, direct brain, brain link. Mm-hmm. So, but I guess that's, you know, getting to that place where we do have the ability to do that, um, but still live in those high rises and on top of each other yeah. because that's conducive to creativity because that's the empathy and, and the contact that people need. Um, uh, it's likely going to, be, going to be a place where, well, you asked me if, how I would like it to be. Well, I would like it to be, uh, I would like, like it where a lot of the health issues are resolved and we live very long because dying is a huge waste of resources um, and experience. Um, but at the same time, I you know, here's the, here's the caveat. I think before that happens, I think uh, we'll have issues. Yeah. Uh, significant ones. Okay. What? Yeah. And then we thought about thoughts pre speaking, but it's really true. There's no massive issues speaking mm-hmm. in general. It's a very slow interface. Yeah. About it. Imagine if we could communicate at the speed of our brains. Mm. First of all, brains like accelerate, right? Um, because we would not be focused on delivering yeah, the speech. Taking like, half your thoughts and making the speech. Speech or text, whatever yeah. it is, exactly. So, so, <laughs> right. so I think I think there is a big opportunity here for uh, the human species to actually become a lot smarter, just without altering the hardware so much, just plugging it in better ways. Mm. Um, 
ultimate hardware for human for humans is hard. Uh, it's, it's complex biology, and you know. Uh, but but at least the communication protocol, if we could alter that, I think we would we get a huge boost in terms of our collective intelligence. Yeah, yes, that'd be awesome. Um, have you read a lot of ideas behind this, or are you sort of thinking about the book so you came up with this idea? I've always thought about um, you know. I've always, I'm always interested in trying to overcome our limitations. Mm. And so, I've, you know, I know that I'm not the only one to have thought about this. Uh, some mm. other people have, for sure. Uh, but it's, it's, yeah, it's something that, I've, uh, that I thought about years ago, decades ago, I would say, yeah. um, when I was uh, half my age. Mm. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about, like, um, like the hyperloop and stuff. And I was like, okay, it's like, <laughs> why did it take so long to get to my grandparents? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I had, like, all these images and stuff in my brain. And, like, actually, yeah, a lot of people think it's um, But I didn't have it about language, which is kind of weird because if it was actually a big problem for me. But I generally try to, like, if something annoys me as a problem, I'd accept it if I can't change it or think about how to change it. Yeah, and then the other issue is language. Language is also a disruptor mm. of, um, of thought because yeah. it's limiting. It's it's also just part of the story. It doesn't necessarily tell you emotions as well because you know facial expressions and gestures are important. Um, it's it's limiting and and think about how language. I mean, it's it's a classical thing when you're on the phone. We all know that being on the phone isn't as good as being next to one another, yeah. right? So it's um, and yet the language can be as expressive. It, it is just that it's um, it does not contain enough within it yeah. to convey the whole thing. Yeah, so many texts where you mean one thing and the other that's the opposite. That's exactly right. So email is such a yeah. such a poor form of communication, is it? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, on a slightly different topic, um, what do you think about the fact that as we're building AI and um, it's potentially going to have such a huge effect on our on humanity that there isn't many women in AI? So it's a problem that there are not enough women in AI, mm. and I'm not sure why. Yeah. I was watching, um, like, after I watched a series of your videos, this thing came out like this hour-long conference of, like, all the leading researchers in AI, and it's just, like, a panel of, like, 15 men. And you're like, there's <laughs> yeah. one woman now. <laughs> no, it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, I, I know a, a few women entrepreneurs in the AI space, but not, not many. I, I think it's a broad computer science issue. Mm, yeah, sure. It's just not AI machine learning. It just it probably is um, very apparent to machine machine learning in the AI space. Uh, I, I see no reason why this should not be successful. Mm. And there's certainly you know even though I can't really point to to it, but it's certainly um, it's certainly some form of bias, uh, and it's unfortunate. Mass generally the you know women are massively underutilized resource in, in our community anyway. Generally, but that's just one more example. Okay. Cool. Um, do you think it could influence the way we build AIs at all, or some kind of the way we think about building them? Like, like women have different sort of outlooks on emotions. And... I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know if women would change the way we build AI. They might they might decide to apply it to order to uh, sorry other types of applications first. They they might also go about it in a more pragmatic manner. It's a let's say trait typically associated with women, but I don't want to stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's hard to say really. But 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 what I know though, I think it's the critical point here, is that diversity is creativity. Mm. And in this world, 
we need, and I repeat what I said before, you need to be adaptable in order to survive and thrive. Adaptability comes from creativity. And so more creativity, more adaptability will come from diversity. And it's just not women. It's, it's, it's having a diverse workforce, diverse people, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds. You know, all of that yields creativity. I think there's this, in a, some way, in some odd way, and maybe not perfectly because we just talk about women. In some ways, I think that's one of the major assets uh, of Silicon Valley, the fact that it's such a diverse place. Not diverse enough, we just talked about it, right? Yeah. But it's, you know, the U.S. generally is, is, is the coasts are a massive melting pot. And, mm. and, and I think that is giving the U.S., I think, an unfair but deserved yeah. competitive advantage against uh, a lot of the world. So is that one of the reasons why you went there to, are you started it in Asia or here, or has it always been on both sides? It's been both sides. I started in Japan and then um, I was briefly in Germany and then went to uh, actually Hong Kong and then back and then to the US. Um, but yeah, I'm a firm believer in the US economy as a system. It's a meritocracy. It gives entrepreneurs the ability to um, try. It authorizes them to fail and then try again, yeah. fail and try again. And that's really what matters. Mm. So you know, failure is is part of uh, the lessons that you have in the Silicon Valley. I, 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 usually, I usually say that Silicon Valley is a lesson in failure. It is true because out of all the failures comes great lessons and great lessons breed great companies. Yeah, I was watching a video where they called it the 10,000 experiment rule. So yeah. not the 10,000 like, hour rule be genius or something that just trying and trying again and constantly looking at different ways yes um, I like it yeah diversity helps yeah right? so yeah cool um yeah so I first met you through when I was working at Automore and um you were always really good at kind of seeing the bigger picture of what was going on and to give us more accurate advice maybe than some other people we spoke to is that a skill you've always had you think or did you acquire it along the way I'm not sure I know the answer I feel mm. like I had it for a long time yeah but I think I just I had it for a long time not because uh, I was you know inherently intelligent but I think because I was curious uh, growing up and when you're curious you have to look for you have to understand you have to understand more of the world right and uh, understanding more of the world and having this general exposure I think makes you make connections or inferences that are not necessarily obvious to others uh, so I think it's it's that curiosity that got me to um, trying to understand more okay so you think that kind of Connect the dots, maybe. Yeah. And so you think that helps a lot in like your business? Is it like the curiosity that's led to all the things you've done? For sure. Yes. I mean, the the goals in my life are clear. The, the journey was completely serendipitous. And yeah. that, because of what you just mentioned, curiosity was the, the things that got me to try things when, you know, they were not that obvious. Okay, cool. Uh, so I was going to ask later, but... We're talking about girls stuff from when you were younger. Do you have any favorite childhood memories? Childhood memories, yeah. favorite. Uh, I have uh, I have an interesting memory of my childhood, which is it would be, it would be odd to call it favorite, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it definitely marked me. I'll actually mention two. Yeah, it's a no. I push it sixty four. Mm-hmm. So I will start this here. Yeah? So I will talk about perhaps two childhood memories. Uh, one is a favorite, but you, you might think why. Uh, so uh, I was uh, camping with my parents and my uh, brother and sisters in a, in a place in the middle of the woods in Holland. And it was a very large place. 
forested. And um, my brother and I went to wash ourselves. And then when we are back, we decided to replay sort of a hide and seek. And we got lost. And we got lost in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and you know, night was falling and all this. And so we... It's this big forest and we got lost. And it's like in the uh, Middle Ages, you're thinking, you know, what's going to happen to us? And, you know, and then we eventually um, hit, hit, uh, managed to get to a road and we followed the road to the entrance of, the, of the, this, map, this very large camp in the back end. Uh, and then uh, by then, the whole camp was looking for us. They uh, organized uh, parties, search parties and all this. Um, and to me, it's, uh, it's that, that child memory is about uh, me and my brother, my younger brother, just, you know, just, not you know obviously understanding we were not in a good situation but yeah. but not losing our sanity and you know finding a way to yeah, overcome the problem exactly so that's one uh the second thing is um my uh my grandfather was a very smart person who got injured um in the war and he actually lost his eyesight and he was um, a remarkable man in many ways and he uh, an example to most of us, he actually, after getting after being blind, he completed uh, the, uh, the engineering school that he was admitted to. He was uh, the best one in France, actually. Uh, and he went to marry, uh, had five kids, adopted one, and then went to run his own company, which ironically, of course, was in the business of producing lights, you know, light, light bulbs. There we go. So, and I used to play, I used to play with him chess, and he was a blind man. Yeah. And he was playing chess. He was he was um, representing the chessboard in his head, and uh, and I played with him many 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 times, and um, that told me something about again overcoming, but this time it's overcoming something that's totally unfair, you know. Um, but just through sheer will and and also benevolence in his case, he was, yeah. he was a benevolent guy. He was not trying to impress anything upon you. Mm. He was trying to engage, but doing some remarkable things in the process. That's very cool. Yeah, it's insane. That's good. Thank you very much for sharing. Cool. Okay. Um, then on the next sort of lesson thing, what's your favorite parable? My favorite what? Parable? Parable, yeah. Like, if you don't have one, you can come out with some other memories. <laughs> I'm quite liking you. Yeah, I don't have a favorite parable. No yeah, do you have, mm. I guess we've always played quite a few lessons. Lesson that I learned? Yeah. So there's one big lesson that I learned along the way, and that is do not focus on status. Do not focus on the money in the bank. And I, I, I discovered that, I guess, through um, trial and error. Um, now maybe in this case, trial and not error. But uh, the interesting thing is that for most of my career, whenever I moved from jobs to jobs, it's almost always the case in every single thing that I've done. I moved to positions or jobs or companies that would pay me less yeah. than the job I was in before. Mm. And but through but the belief carries the day, right? So if yeah. you believe in it and if you work your ass off and if um, you if you have conviction, I think that's important. Um, then that turns into better. That turns into uh, opportunities that you could never have dreamed about. And I think to me that's a big lesson. It's not about um, you have to make the ends meet. Okay, I think I think that is clear to most. But beyond that, what's what's really important is you do you do what you really believe in. If you can, if you have the skills to do that, if you're f- fortunate enough to be in a position where you can choose something you believe in, mm-hmm. right? And in the developed world, at least some of us can choose this way. If you if you can choose that, choose that versus choose what's going to give you a bigger paycheck or a bigger a bigger name. 
eventually this is what's going to, going to carry you and, and carry everybody else along the way. That's very interesting. You know, when you, you like read like a book or something, it tells you something that you're sort of doing already, but you haven't realized you're doing it. Like there's just a bit more of a process behind it. And I've only ever taken jobs that were kind of like entry level, which is like more interesting in a space that I didn't know about or wasn't that qualified for. So I've always like gone down kind yes. of on purposely, but just for seeking like the interesting opportunities more than like yes. pay, but I haven't like analytically told myself that's what I'm doing. But it's like, yes, <laughs> so it's good to hear that I'm doing things right. On paper, it looks like I'm doing it wrong. It makes complete sense to me, Yeah, on what you just said, but, uh, but, but you know, I think it's the same for me. I mean, it's not that I solved for that at the beginning. Um, it just happened that I took it in job A or job B that, yeah. you know, it, um, but I think it, it's always worked out for me. It's good to hear. Thanks. Um, Maybe random. Uh, your French. Do you have a favorite cheese? Yes, uh, my favorite cheese would be uh, French cheese called Brie. Uh, it's mild. I'm not a big fan of it's no. smelly, smelly French so cheese. Not the rock for no, 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 not not, not that guy. Wow. <laughs> so of all the cheeses, you actually only have like quite a small collection that you enjoy them. I like cheese. I'm not, you know, I'm not a quintessential uh, Frenchman who just okay. loves cheese. Uh, I, I love cold cuts though. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That I love. Wine? To collect. Okay. Not yeah. to drink that much. No, I'm not. Really? To, yeah, yeah. Isn't uh, that thing a bit pointless? As, a, as an asset class. I, yeah. like, I like wine as an asset class. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I think, look, I think wines are great. Mm. But I think like everything you need, you really need to enjoy it. Um, yeah. To, to really, you know. So um, I enjoy it. I enjoy a casual drink. Mm. Um, but if you ask me whether I prefer beer or wine, I, you know, the, yeah. it's not, I like both. Yeah, it's like the classic joke of like, a glass of Coke is still going to be tastier. And you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> ruby. I'm not a big foodie. Yeah, I'm not a big foodie guy. Okay. To me, it's food is food and drink. Food and drinks are utilitarian. Yeah. Okay. More than anything. Do you ever have um, you know, fuel or like um, soil in those kind of things? Where it's like a, a meal in like a shape and it has like everything the body needs kind of thing. Or that would be not yeah. That Maybe I should try that. Yes. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. But like to uh, efficient and yeah, that stuff in the fridge. I've been thinking about things. I did a did like a week trial of it when I moved to Brussels first, and it was there. I went better and learned coding, and it was quite refreshing. And that you never went shopping or you never had any thoughts about what you might be eating later or what you need to use or whether you need to like buy from something because if there was yeah, no option, there. it was literally like. Yeah. I'm just gonna like pull this into a shake and drink, and then that's that. I think the future might look like that too. Yeah, it's amazing and more sustainable is like vegan and yeah, protein and things. Um, okay, so gone into a few past things, but is there anything in your past that if you could go back and change, but still keep the memory of and not have any other future like butterfly effects that would change down the line apart from this one thing? Is there anything you would go back and not do? Yes, but I can't tell you. Okay. Is there anything that you would go back and not do that you could tell me about? <laughs> uh, or is there anything that you would do in my opportunity you could have taken? I, yes, I'll, I'll, um, I can tell you one thing that I believe I should have not done. Uh, and that's another lesson. Um, and it's back to this um, those formative years of my life when I was a young adult and, and, and being in Japan. Um, because I, I really tried to conform, to belong. And in doing that, you uh, you begin to lose yourself. And um, and I think after five or six years there, I was a different being. And I was not me. I was the projection of me. And um, 
And I think in, in, in doing that, I think, I think I hurt people and I hurt myself. So if I, if I had been more confident in myself, I would have been able to um, um, manage that better. And uh, my wife was the one to rescue me effectively. And, um, but it took, it took her, it took, it took that courage, and, um, which was not my wife at the time, but it took, it took that courage and that uh, reach that she had to you know, extract the natural out of that yeah. persona that I had. And uh, I think, yeah, I, I think that was not a good, um, that was the difficult time of my life. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that I, I was able to, overcome, I was able, someone was able to overcome that for me. Yeah. Well. Do you think you needed to conform first to be able to learn to not conform? That's a great question. Um, perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's it's possible that you you need to make a mistake to recognize yeah. it. Certainly, I do recognize it now, and I'm I think I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm a better person for it for sure. Uh, so it's possible. Yeah, you make a good yeah. point. There's this thing like when I was younger, I maybe wasn't always a bit popular kid and things, and then like when I got to about sixteen, and suddenly. I just became a lot better at talking. Like I said, I wasn't that good at it. And I did become like really cool and conformed and was sort of like the kid. And then by the time I was 20, I just sort of stopped caring about anyone and like yeah. definitely became very much like, well, this is things I like doing and how I am and it doesn't really matter. And yeah. Yeah, it's quite possible that there is this uh, conflict between the individual and society and then you have to find, um, you have to yeah, be extreme in both to eventually find the, yeah. the balance. Remember that my friend's like little sister was on Facebook the whole time trying to like be popular and things. You're just telling you like it doesn't matter, like stop. But because I think maybe they just have to go through the phase of right. conforming and being cool to realise that then it doesn't matter. Yeah, maybe. That's a fair point. Yeah. Interesting. It's a hard one to really yeah. Yeah. teach to someone, but it's certainly very true. Um so sharing that. And do you have any favorite books? I have a lot of favorite books, like reading. Uh, I'm trying to think about one favorite book. Think about it. Okay. Um, like I think. non-fiction and fiction. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll I'll talk about two books. Uh, one which I read as a the teenager uh, growing up, which is it's one of the French classic, uh, which um, was written by by um, Balzac, uh, the fiction uh, very famous fiction writer. In, 18th, 18th century or oh, 19th century, I forgot. 18th century, and um, it's called the Last Illusions. Uh, Illusion perdue, les illusions perdues in French. The Last Illusions. The Last Illusions. The Lost. Lost Illusions. Yeah. 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 And it tells the story of a of a um, up and comer, or rather, someone who is um, deep from the province and who goes to the big world, Paris in this case, and to make it, and and makes it, and then loses it, uh, everything. Um, yeah. And so it was a great story, very interesting. Um, uh, more recently, I read uh, a very interesting nonfiction book about Hedo Teller. So it's autobiography. Hedo Teller was the inventor of the H bomb and yeah. a very controversial figure. Um, but his autobiography is very interesting. Um, two things that come to mind is, is all the, the efforts that people like him had to make to escape Europe um, in uh, the 30s. And uh, the other is in how they were welcome in the US. Um, not all of them were welcome. We, don't, we, we know the stories, but some, some like him, when, when they, they did, they went and they were welcome because of their intellect. Um, they could do things, right? Um, and one thing that fascinated me was when they came up with a design for the H-bomb, they had to calculate whether um, the reaction, nuclear reaction, would boil the ocean, would fuse, fuse the ocean, 
Because if you had fused the ocean, they yeah. fuse the earth and the whole globe would explode, right? So they, so they calculated it and they decided upon calculation that no, it was not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> but wow. imagine doing that. Imagine yeah. calculating whether you're going to blow up the world. Yeah, that's cool. Like, um, I read uh, recently that, I'm not sure if it's actually true, but the fastest man-made object ever was the um, cap on one of like the tubes that they exploded one of the first sort of H1 tests in, in like a tunnel and they just had like a, a manhole cover on it. And when they did it, they sort of had like a frame rate going really fast and they only caught it once, it was sort of, like three miles up in the air in between like the, when wow. they exploded and they calculated it. It was going like, I think faster than the fastest probe you've ever made. Wow. But I need to, well, yeah, I'm not entirely sure it could be something else, but it's still pretty cool stuff that we're getting on my Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and do you have any hobbies? I read. I read about history. Yeah. Cool. Um, how do you read? As in, do you listen to audiobooks in the gym? Do you make a point of reading at nine o'clock at night? No, I wish. Um, I, I, I read, uh, I, I buy books. I love books. You go to my place, you'll see plenty of books and not, not uh, virtual. They're clearly yeah. on the shelves. Yeah. Uh, I love books. And um, it's this odd thing that me, a book is knowledge. Uh, so the world is around me, so to speak, and so I can access it in some very yeah. physical way, right? I love that uh, feeling. And, um, and so, no, I do. I just take a, a book and then I read it, and uh, it's not fixed. I wish it was fixed. I wish I had enough time, but it's when I can. The plane, uh, whenever I can. I would, I would uh, in my spare moments, I will read a few pages. And I, I love history because it, it um, I think it does. I love history because... Of course, for the lessons, yes, mm. but also for the uh, the experience of man mm. and what what we have gone through yeah. in history and what people, both remarkable and unremarkable people, have gone through. Cool. Yeah, I've been getting a lot more into history lately again. I think because I used to read like when I was a child, and I kind of went to a phase maybe for the last sort of seven or years, not really reading that much, but and I just find it much more interesting suddenly again. It, it, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, have you read Nothing to Envy? It's a book about North Korea. No. Yeah, I'm reading it at the moment, but yeah, it's stupidly interesting. Um, yeah, North Korea is interesting. Yeah, it's a crazy place. But it follows like seven main characters and like their sort of their stories and some families from back from like the end of the war to like now, the latest one, which I was like, detectives and stuff. It's a true story. Yeah, it's all based on true stories. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, I'd really recommend reading it and just like, just as a. I would, I would read it. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah, just teach you like. Crazy stuff that's gone on that I had no idea about, like all the starvation and like the way like they managed to keep a whole country worth of people in complete like yeah. isolation and like believing that these people that believe them are kind of gods and doing the right thing and right. like you couldn't like walk into like, North Korea and tell people like oh it's fine come to North America because they'll just like think you're a dick kind of thing and, yeah they think that theirs is their yeah yeah so they think like Americans have been doing everything and they actually like they have like a better life than other people and there's yeah. some crazy moments when like this woman like runs to China and she like she breaks into this person because she's kind of like half frozen and she's got through this river and she hasn't like seen white rice in like years and then like there's this bowl with white rice with some meat in it like just through the gate and she's like why is there white rice here what's going on and then like the dog comes and starts eating it she's like how the hell can like a dog be eating like this most precious thing that I haven't been able to like see she's a doctor who hasn't been able to eat like rice and in the 21st century yeah it's crazy yeah it's yeah it's a really good book um cool as you're into history and that's a good thing and um yeah is there anything you want to ask me as we're wrapping up um yeah i want to ask you one question mm -hmm. and that is if you project yourself 10 years out okay 
What are you doing? Ten years time. So I've been pretty good at doing most of the things that are on my list to do in terms of scale of things that I've been doing and targets and I've been buying a flat, doing like more side projects like multimedia production, like I've got to 25. So on my list is to write an album by the time I'm 30, uh, have a podcast with a sort of like a sizable level of people. So I'm really enjoying it. So I don't see why I would ever stop doing it. So <laughs> by 10 years time, it should be a recognizable podcast across uh, the English speaking areas. It's like a notable thing. I really want to get more into journalism and things like North Korean stuff. I'd, I'd love to um, actually speak to some people like that and have more like series or like sequences behind like telling more stories. So deeper, I guess deeper, do more research. Yeah, I want to like do more like things. I've been applying for some things with BBC to maybe like run some episodes and stuff with them. So in ten years time, I will yeah, I'll be more of a journalist and. Then, like, my main thing, I guess, is business. I've constantly always been running some form of business. Then, so I started my first business company, which I ran four years and sold. Now, I've done a number of like side projects since then, but I guess I keep on trying things like the 10,000 experiment rule. I feel like I will be doing something bigger. So, I've got a few ideas I'm working on over next year. So, in 10 years' time, it's hard to say exactly what, but I think I want to have finished working on anything just for the point of like money and be working on more what can I achieve with this business so I want to go more down the line of sustainability or healthcare they need um, to make a difference yeah. yeah they've got a few ideas in those areas but I'm struggling how to really launch them that's great um, that's fine you've got 10 years to, to launch yeah <laughs> it's a little like Oh, I don't know how much I need to go into depth. I should have a wife and probably children by 10 years' time. And there's lots of things to go through. Okay, I should probably stop uh, traveling all the time and maybe we can learn more things. Cool. Great answer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What will you be doing in 10 years' time? Um, well, hopefully, I will, uh, I will have uh, helped many people get to the next level mm. uh, of you know personal success and, and uh, impact yeah that's how i'm transitioning my life from being an entrepreneur to being an investor and but just not an investor it's someone who just gets involved and really helps people and helps and help entrepreneur deliver on their potential and that's hopefully within 10 years i've got a few of these under my belt and they've gone on to build great things and yeah and make great impact that's what i would like you to do cool in 10 years. that's we i guess it's in, in the point of the podcast is to help people go out and explore yeah learn to be better themselves so i feel that's something i'd really like to achieve by then cool and will have achieved mentality it's gonna happen <laughs> cool so thanks very much and um yeah finish some time for your next meeting thank you sir thanks for delaying it thanks so much well that was the interview what an interesting set of stories i i really love getting more into people's stories and where they've come from and i think it's a good direction for the podcast that i'm going to follow more in the future as long as no one gives me feedback about how bad it is and um, i wish i'd had more time to go into uh the founding of Siri and all that backstory, but sadly, I don't know, not enough time. Anyway, I like to uh, break down my top tips. Number one, have a growth mindset. You can literally achieve seriously big goals if you work for them, despite any limitations you think you have. Like his grandfather carried on with his life with a positive attitude and went on to do incredible things despite being blind and never gave up. He managed to run a successful business and carry on with personal hobbies like playing chess. Like, I don't think I'll ever forget the story of Anton playing chess with him because it's just truly incredible.
Number two, challenge yourself. Open yourself to interesting challenges and learning experiences at every point. Given the option of studying in America or Japan, choose Japan. <laughs> Taking the next job up the chain versus a step down in, in a new avenue where you could learn a lot more. Like, take the set down and take on the set of new challenges and jump in at the deep end. And you'll learn so much faster and be a much more rounded person with way more skills. I think, in general, if you're feeling fairly safe, that's a sign that you're doing something wrong. And you need to always have some challenges that you're almost a little bit scared about as to whether you're going to be able to achieve them or not. Otherwise, you're really just not trying hard enough. Number three. Ask people what others say about them, and don't ask about their weaknesses or strengths. I think this is a really nice insight into actually getting a more honest view of what other people perceive someone, and probably a more accurate view of their traits rather than what someone thinks is their traits, because we all live in our own world where we think we're great at stuff, and maybe we don't get recognized for that, because it's not something that we actually have as a trait. I could probably have explained that better, but I think you get the point. And now on to books, my favorite thing. So Antoine's first book recommendation is Lost Illusions by Honor de Balzac. And that might be pronounced wrong, so look at the show notes if you want to find it. Um, I've never heard of this book before, but on investigation, it sounds amazing. It seems to be considered one of the great French classics that's taught in school all over France and much more appreciated actually as an adult. But I really can't wait to read it. It seems to be a coming-of-age novel about a French man who moves to Paris to seek love and glory. And I'm hoping to just get insights onto life in France back in the 19th century, but all in the form of a beautifully written novel. So maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'm excited to read it anyhow. Then he also recommends Edward Teller's autobiography. It's called Memoirs, a 20th century journey in science and politics. So he covers the story behind the H-bomb, as well as his entire path uh, leading up to the H-bomb and after it, and also recounts the effects had on him from his relationships with great minds like Einstein, von Neumann, Bohr, and Fermi. So another book I'm just quite excited to read. And then finally, my own book recommendation was Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demick. This book had a really big effect on me, uh, just learning how an entire society can be controlled by their rulers and that it's actually still going on today, just made it feel a bit more real and worrying, I guess, and just a lot of insights into human psychology. So a truly great book that covers the story of several families in North Korea from the end of the war up until today, and possibly the best book that I read last year. Like I said, it did have a big effect on me. One of which was a massive urge to go to North Korea and just see things for myself. So I actually delayed release of this podcast as I didn't want to talk about this book until I'd been to North Korea. So I'm pleased to announce that I have now visited North Korea. It was actually quite lovely, as well as completely mind-blowing and weird all at the same time. So certainly stay subscribed to hear future podcasts on North Korea and what is going on there. And that is the end of the podcast. You've listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to reach out, I'd love to talk to you. On Twitter, I am at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram, Sam Jam Snaps.
Show notes, along with links to everything that we discuss, are available at growthmindsetpodcast.com, along with information on how to get involved and blog posts on cool things that we should be aware of. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy your next podcast.